Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. In part one of this series, the question that I sought a biblical answer for was, when is it permissible for the Christian to disobey civil authorities? The impetus to search for an answer was persuaded by current events in that, over the past several months, secular authorities have already used their political power to shut down churches across the United States and in many other countries around the world. The reasons provided for said shutdowns was an acute public health crisis. For the Christian, whose ultimate allegiance is to their true king, Christ, a tension subsequently exists between how they are to faithfully serve Jesus while also being an exemplary citizen and acting Christ-like in the Christ-less kingdom of the world. In part one, the main text used came from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. An analysis of those scriptures revealed that God has not called the state to simply rule by fiat. The text, as well as the whole canon of scripture, makes clear that the Christian is not called to blindly submit to every edict that Caesar makes without a consideration of how that edict compares to the ultimate law, the word of God. Accordingly, what Romans 13, 1-7 makes plain is that God has called the state to be moral, a defender of good, and a punisher of evil. Hence, when the state either discourages virtue or encourages vice, and is therefore itself an agent of evil, it is not acting like a legitimate governing authority. An illegitimate authority is not to be uncritically followed. Rather, it is to be prophetically critiqued. It is therefore permissible for the Christian to disobey civil authorities whenever Rome commands them to do something that God specifically forbids. In such cases, not only may a Christian disobey, he must disobey, for his ultimate allegiance is to God, not to Caesar. The inverse is also true. The Christian must disobey the state when it commands the Christian not to do something that God commands them to do. As Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus does not say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments unless Caesar says otherwise. In the end, God is sovereign. The state is not. Furthermore, if we also incorporate what the Apostle Peter says about the Christian and the state in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 20, it is evident that he reminds us that we are pilgrims in a foreign land and that our inheritance is in heaven. Hence, we should model heavenly realities here on earth. This simply means that for the Christian dissident, the point is not mere descent. Rather, by living pro-Christ, the people of God fulfill their calling to act as God's priestly people for the sake of the governing pagans that are hostile to them. Christian dissidents therefore act for the glory of God and always stand firm in the truth. They live not by lies and do not seek vengeance on those authorities who use immoral coercion. Living not by lies means living with a willingness to suffer for the truth and absorbing on the self whatever injustice is inflicted. 
this biblical understanding is crucial to comprehend because there will always be an irreconcilable tension between the citizen of heaven who lives in the kingdom of the world because as C.S. Lewis once said, the world is enemy-occupied territory for the Christian. Now, cognizant of everything that has already been said, there is one glaring omission that I neglected to address in my prior analysis. That glaring omission was to assume a biblical understanding of worldly authority. The reality is, we live in an era where the Bible is more available than any other time in history, yet relatively speaking, at no other time has the Bible been so widely ignored. Many Christians in modernity do not have their idea of what secular authority is and what it is supposed to do, informed by the Bible. Instead, whether they are aware of it or not, for many Christians, their functional beliefs about the state come from the state and or culture at large. As a result, they may bring earthly ideas of governing authorities into texts like Romans 13, which obviously causes difficulties. It causes difficulties, of course, because an attempt is being made to reconcile cultural ideology with divine revelation. Accordingly, when Christians debate over divergent conclusions on how a believer interacts with governing authorities, it is unproductive if the parties begin with the effects, as in, this is what I will do. It is far more productive if parties begin with causes, as in, from what source does your idea of a governing authority come from. It is from this starting point that Christians can begin to have meaningful conversations about what a legitimate biblical governing authority is and the Christian's responsibility to it. Presumably, it is from such conversations that Christians will have a clearer idea that not only is civil disobedience biblically permissible in certain cases, but it is also our responsibility. That is, as it was already mentioned, no Christian ever acts contra Caesar for the sake of acting against anything. Instead, we may act contra Caesar because first and foremost, we are acting for Christ's kingdom, his truth, and his people. This course of action is typically costly and invariably involves suffering. This is one of the main differences between ideology and truth. People who worship ideology typically cause other people to suffer for it. The truth is credible and just because people willingly suffer for the truth. So, the question at hand is this. What does the Bible say about governing authorities? What is a reasonable understanding of what a governing authority is supposed to do so that a child of God may faithfully chart a course of obedience to the Lord in the midst of secular governing authorities? In the subsequent analysis, my examination of the idea of secular authority will focus on broad principles, but also fall into three specific areas of systematic theology. The doctrines of anthropology, or of man, the doctrines of homartiology, or of sin, and eschatology, or the end. So first, let's get a biblical idea of secular authority according to anthropology, or the doctrine of man. By divine design, built into the essence of humanity is for them to rule over their environments. Hence, the idea of human government begins in the Bible's first chapter. 
In Genesis 1, 26 and 28, God's intent is for man to rule over creation and to subdue it. Thus, the foundation of man ruling the environment around him is established in Eden in the pre-fall world. Subsequently, after the fall of man, Adam and Eve were judged and cast eastward out of Eden. This tells us that everything that happens next, which means all of human history, happens in the context of a fallen, sin-saturated world. The point? That there are no perfect governments. They are institutions composed of broken people who govern other broken people in the midst of a world that is broken. Truly, the state is something that is necessary, but it is never ideal. It naturally follows that human government is never a means of salvation or sanctification because the Messiah will be born of a virgin, not the political process. Genesis 3 also tells us that since the exit from Eden, a holy war has been ongoing. That war, of course, is the result of the enmity placed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This often overlooked Bible fact communicates the simple idea that while those of God exist in the world, they are neither of the world nor are they at peace with the world. While the church coexists with the kingdom of the world, the two are inherently incompatible. Moreover, in Genesis, God also saw to it not to prescribe a specific type of government that is a biblical ideal. He saw it sufficient only to warn us against extremes. One extreme is total freedom with no control or anarchy. The other extreme is total control with no freedom or totalitarianism. In Genesis 6, we have an example of the first extreme, anarchy, where in essence, everyone could do what is right in their own eyes. Why? Because there was no earthly authority to protect the righteous and punish the wicked. The result was an immoral anarchy where every intent of the thoughts of men was on evil continually and the earth was corrupt, filled with violence. The end result was judgment in the form of the great global flood. Fast forward to Genesis 11, where we have a glimpse of a primitive totalitarian regime where everyone was united with a common cause, to build the Tower of Babel, the goal of which was to reach the heavens above. I say this historical narrative gives us insight into the extreme control and no freedom of totalitarianism because the Tower was meant to supplant God and make a name for the ones building it. In essence, Babel was a monument of idolatry where man builds his own stairway to heaven. The result was not man saving man, but divine judgment in a foolish attempt to usurp the Lord. That judgment resulted in a confusion of languages and the scattering of people all over the face of the earth. So, the principles that we subsequently derive from Genesis is that, biblically speaking, human government strikes a balance between order and freedom. Either extreme is sinful in that in anarchy, I am my own God. In totalitarianism, the state is God because it seeks total control and to define the terms of reality. In many ways, totalitarianism is the abominable child of anarchy because the true totalitarian is the self. What a totalitarian regime merely does is give individual tyrants power so that they can do what is right in their own eyes in the name of Caesar. 
east of Eden, in the resultant history of the world, what we observe is that, in general, secular power tends to be hierarchical in that you have a figure at the top of a pyramid, whether that figure is Caesar, the president, a king, a general, or a chief. Those leaders have subordinates underneath them, and essentially, what those at the top say is what goes. The system of checks and balances is biased in that the further up the pyramid you go, the less and less restraint there is on power. Now, compare this worldly model of authority to the biblical model of power, which is covenantal. The covenantal model is best typified in the theocratic kingdom of Israel as detailed in the Old Testament. In said model, there is no single man at the top. Instead, you have three different earthly offices in which leadership operates, prophet, priest, and king. In each office, the individual who occupied it was instructed not to operate as an owner, but as a steward, meaning prophets, priests, and kings primarily serve the true king, God, and then serve the people that the Lord was in covenant with. So, these earthly leaders were called to exemplify God's heavenly care to his people. As a result, their performance in positions of leadership was focused on the well-being of the community. An ideal biblical prophet, priest, or king did not go for the highest bid or for the most power. Rather, they went for the highest service. And biblically speaking, power was segregated, and the power of one did not encroach upon another. As a result, there was no single and supreme figurehead that had a monopoly on power. Yet, it must be noted that distinct offices did retain the ability to critique the others, either for failure to perform or for overreach. For example, as 1 Kings chapter 18 shows us, a prophet could openly rebuke a king for not administering justice according to the law or using his power for immorality. The point is that in the biblical model of covenantal power, authority was decentralized and confined in order to curb the sinful tendency of men to abuse their office. Abuse of God's covenantal offices was one reason why the kingdoms of Judah and Israel fell and the people were then exiled. Biblical history tells us that in the promised land over time, people in general progressively hardened in their sins and turned their backs on God as a function of false worship. Their kings degenerated as well and acted more and more like worldly kings. Prideful and power-hungry demagogues who did what was right in their own eyes. The result was decay and death from within and then societal collapse. The last point I will make on this section is that the three biblical offices were able to critique one another because they were distinct. There were separate offices of prophet, priest, and king. In modernity, the church is the institution that provides the prophetic voice in the kingdom of the world. And why is the church's prophetic voice often ignored or minimized? Well, one reason why is because the church has become indistinct from the rest of the world. The 21st century church in the West is so non-influential because it preaches a message similar to secular culture. That is, we can make your life feel better, less God. Accordingly, if the church is not salty, how can it preserve anything? If the church is just like the world, then what is there to critique? 
Is it not plausible to conclude that in many cases, the church unquestioningly yields to Caesar because both are of the same essence? If the church is no longer the church and is largely similar to the world, then it makes perfect sense that its idea of authority is derived from Caesar and not the Bible, meaning trusting in a hierarchical idea of authority and not a biblical one. It therefore comes as no surprise why the church would uncritically accept the unbiblical mandates of secular authority while ignoring the mandate of truth required by the prophetic office. Second, let's get a biblical idea of secular authority according to homartiology or the doctrine of sin. Total depravity is a biblical doctrine that is intimately linked with the doctrine of original sin. In essence, total depravity recognizes the fact that as a result of the fall of man, every single human being is born morally corrupt and enslaved to sin. Our depravity is total in that it affects our total being, our minds, our hearts, and our wills. Total depravity explains that, apart from the grace of God, every human being is morally unable to do the will of God. Now, let's largely consider how total depravity relates to the state. Political institutions are not formed out of nothing. They are born as a function of the people who create and constitute said institutions. In other words, political institutions are a creature's creation. Subsequently, what political institutions become are manifestations of secular power, but they achieve such as a function of the people who form them. Said people breathe life into the institution, and without said individuals, the system decays because living power ceases to hold the system up. So what happens when totally depraved individuals breathe life into a political institution and it is ascribed power? Those people, as a function of association with the state, do not suddenly become virtuous, nor are they granted the moral ability to do the will of God. The point is this, the state has no inherent virtue, and it would be the height of madness for any Christian to think that just because governing authorities have decreed something, that it makes a decree right, just, or true. Decrees are not a brutal fact. There are just laws and unjust laws. Hence, unless the source of said decree is grounded in divine truth, then it is grounded in total depravity. So for the Christian with an open Bible, when they discern the world around them, what is readily evident is that if total depravity is given coercive political power, the Christian should be highly concerned and cautious. They should also consider being more hesitant about uncritically obeying that which has fallen. Third, let's get a biblical idea of secular authority according to eschatology or the doctrine of the end. The world is broken. How will we fix it? Who will usher in perpetual peace and harmony on earth? According to God, Christ is already king and there is no need to win the world for Jesus because the world is already won. Christians are not called to make heaven on earth because in the end, God has already decreed that he will fashion a new heaven and a new earth where literally Christ will descend and take his rightful place on David's throne to eternally rule over his kingdom right here on earth. Hence, it is divine holy power that will ultimately create utopia. 
God will usher in utopia. Therefore, man will not because he cannot. After all, if man is sinful and lacks holy perfection and omnipotence, how does he expect to fashion a perfect utopia? Sadly, a worldly perversion of the doctrine of eschatology means exactly that. Man saving man and fashioning utopia here on earth. The word utopia comes from ancient Greek and literally means not a place. Utopia is merely an ideal, and that ideal is unachievable. Embracing this fact is protective, but there is a utopia-striving view of the use of secular power that is very dangerous. Why is that? Because when power aims for a utopian society and says to itself, we can make the world a better place, invariably there is a perpetual gap between what is and what can be. So what is the resolve? To close the gap by violence. As biblical evidence of this reality, remember that in the book of Revelation, the ultimate manifestation of antichrist secular power, the beast, it will fashion its own version of paradise by causing the church to suffer and Christians to die. Revelation chapters 12 to 14 form both the literal and the theological center of the book of Revelation. And what message is contained there? That Satan is already defeated, and even he knows that Christ is victorious. The devil knows that his days are numbered, and that he cannot wage war against God. So what is his last-ditch effort? To make war on God's people through secular power. Specifically, Satan knows he cannot usurp God in heaven, so he foolishly tries to create his version of utopia on earth by using secular authority. Be mindful that Lucifer's utopia is only paradise for the godless, the idolaters, and the wicked. It's only utopia for those who hate God. And let us not forget that Rome, or the beast from the sea, is depicted in great might, and the beast makes war against God's people, which leads to many martyrdoms. What biblical eschatology therefore teaches us is that Caesar will ultimately become the church's greatest natural enemy in an attempt to build an earthly kingdom without God. Before I move on, let me just say that eschatologically speaking, the Christian must not only look out for Caesar trying to transform the world, he must also look at the church. God only requires the church to act like the church, nothing more. It will be judged for its own stewardship and preaching and teaching the word, not how it conquered politics. Utopia is not only a dangerous idea according to the Bible. World history teaches us the same lesson. Are there prior examples of regimes where those in secular authority believed they could create a utopia, that they could wield the power of the state to improve society and fix things to make a better world? The answer is yes, and said examples are best represented by the 20th century totalitarian regimes where the state held almost all control and used their power to try and create utopia. Examples of such regimes can be found in China, Russia, Cambodia, and many other places around the world. And how did the totalitarian pursuit of a Marxist utopia play out? What we observe is that, roughly speaking, in the last 100 years, totalitarianism has killed nearly 100 million people. 
These people were killed by their own governments as a function of execution of hostages, murder of political dissidents, and deportation. What history tells us, beloved, is that utopia is ideal for those who ascribe to Caesar's idea of a godless utopia. For everyone else, they are merely enemies of the state and neither have a place nor a function. Death is therefore the path of least resistance. Notably, these facts ought not to be ignored because as I have spoken about in prior podcasts, there is a satanic antichrist agenda that is playing out in the West before our very eyes. One of the chief means this agenda is using to supplant God and further its devilish ends is by using the power of secular authority to pass legislation and coerce people against divine truth and righteousness. The more secular power this agenda has at its disposal, the more it can coerce against God. Analyzing the legacy of totalitarianism is therefore fitting because it preaches to us a simple message. When Caesar acquires too much power, this is what happens. When citizens fail to discern and then reject illegitimate power for what it is, this is what happens. 100 million people die. That is not utopia, it is a dystopian nightmare. Furthermore, the totalitarian regimes of the prior century are instructive because they teach us what happens when there is a gross imbalance between power and freedom. That is, when the state has supreme power and people have little to no freedom, the state is free to exercise its power indiscriminately and to do what is right in its own eyes. You see, the pursuit of utopia necessitates more than mere power. It also requires the abandonment of ultimate truth, morality, and love. Because in order for the state to allow millions of its own people to die, then the truth, love, and morality must be ignored. The path to utopia is only walked by violence, for violence is the use of power that is unguided by moral principles. Violence is the use of power without justice, and ironically, violence becomes an agent of injustice in its application of power. Of course, biblically speaking, violence never yields the benefits its user seeks. Not only do those who live by the sword die by the sword, but said violence is never cathartic. The only thing that is cathartic is forgiveness. I took this brief sidetrack into the political history of the 20th century to make one simple point. Undoubtedly, there were Christians living under these totalitarian regimes and at one point had to decide whether it was lawful to continue to obey Caesar. Do you think if they had the historical perspective that you now have that they may have thought differently about yielding to Caesar? 100 million souls compel us to consider wisely. Yes, we are not living in a Marxist regime yet, but we are steadily progressing towards totalitarianism under the guise of cultural Marxism. Truly, no reasonable person right now will ever support gulags, concentration camps, or firing squads. This is exactly the reason why no reasonable person ought to be duped by the deceitful utopian rhetoric that clears the way and leads up to those abominations being born. Examples of such rhetoric include, this is just to keep you safe, or it's for your own good, or we want to protect you just in case. Whenever Caesar wants to build a better world, he does so by trampling underfoot the people of God and God's truth, morality, and love. 
Whenever Caesar wants to build a better world, he defines better and world according to Caesar. This is precisely why, when Caesar declares his intention to build a better world, the Christian must take extreme caution and know that the virtuous thing to do is to act contra Caesar, cognizant of what is at stake. Consequently, the biggest danger for the modern Christian who does not adhere to a biblical assessment of what secular authority is and what it is supposed to do is that he or she will simply presume about the role of the state and uncritically submit. Every time he or she follows his course of action, Caesar advances one step further toward total control and total godlessness. Now that we have a basic idea of what secular authority is called to be, let's discuss how to respond. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Nobel laureate and an Orthodox Christian. Born in the old Soviet Union, he was subsequently exiled for his anti-totalitarian ideas. He was likely the greatest anti-communist dissident of the 20th century, and after he arrived in America, what he foresaw coming in the West was unlike what he saw in the Soviet Union. What he saw coming in the West was worse. That is, Mr. Solzhenitsyn did not foresee the rise of an old-school, 1984-like, hard totalitarianism with gulags and burning books. Rather, he saw something much more insidious, a soft totalitarianism which aimed to keep people comfortable and meet their felt needs. This rise of soft totalitarianism is eloquently described in a new book by Rob Dreher called Live Not By Lies. This book is based on the work of the late Mr. Solzhenitsyn. Consequently, what the author sees coming down the pike is a superficially kinder and gentler form of state control, where people are manipulated as a function of regulating access to comforts and conveniences while keeping at bay those things that displease them. The desired result is that people voluntarily surrender their rights in exchange for well-being. In this sense, the soft part of totalitarianism refers to control that is soft because it is therapeutic. So while the old totalitarianism conquered society through fear and pain, the new one will conquer by providing niceties and benefits that you can't live without. The old state wanted to force us to surrender at gunpoint. The new soft state still wants surrender, but by means of surrendering our wills. Soft totalitarianism will say, let the Christians have their faith, but it will be a Christianity without tears. Consequently, the author of Live Not By Lies writes, quote, Soft totalitarianism masks its hatred of dissenters from its utopian ideology in the guise of helping and healing, end quote. As it was mentioned before, Caesar has always sought to build utopia, but now he seeks to fashion it by means of soft totalitarianism. But don't let the word soft fool you. He still abhors anyone who does not ascribe to his version of utopia. The only difference now is that Caesar seeks to destroy nonconformists with a smile. Hence, make no mistake, this new regime still has the old agenda, to define truth itself and to have a totalitarian control of reality. This refers to not just what you do, but also how you feel and think. This agenda also invariably means displacing all traditional institutions such as the Christian church. The reason why is because such institutions have competing power and influence in people's lives. 
Indeed, true evil exists neither in its cause nor in its effects. True evil exists in the nature of a thing, and the nature of soft totalitarianism is self-exaltation and the lust for total control in the absence of God. The ideal citizen in a soft totalitarian state loves the state and bends the knee before it. In essence, the ideal subject lives by lies, and the ultimate political lie is Caesar is Lord. Woefully, the cult of soft totalitarianism is once again trying to rebuild Babel in a move to try and supplant the Lord. Ironically, this will leave Caesar as the only thing left that will be transcendent. So, in the midst of an emerging totalitarian state, how do Christians respond? The way is certainly not to follow the mantra, Hail Caesar, when Caesar is contra Christ. And it simply won't work to respond to totalitarianism in the same way that we would respond in the midst of a constitutional republic. Sadly, Christian resistance thus far has failed because it has not been very Christian at all. In many instances, it has amounted to many within the church sticking to the thoughtless principle, if Caesar decrees it, then we must obey. This principle does not promote godliness, nor does it animate perseverance. This principle does provide legitimacy to an immoral, illegitimate state whose goal is to devour those who submit to it. Accordingly, in the Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, quote, The timid civilized world has found nothing with which to oppose the onslaught of a sudden revival of barefaced barbarity other than concessions and smiles, end quote. Solzhenitsyn believed that the core of the crisis that sustained totalitarianism was not political, but spiritual. That is to say, those who had obeyed had faith in the system, and those who failed to resist lacked faith in anything else. What Solzhenitsyn saw in his fellow brothers and sisters that were worn down by state oppression is dehumanization. People who forgot who they were and merely went with the flow. They smiled in a cowardly fashion and mumbled with their tongues tied. People were so beaten up that they were willing to abandon all their core principles as long as their delicate existence was not disrupted. I'll ask the question again, so how then do modern Christians in the West respond to the looming threat of soft totalitarianism? And the answer is first, by trusting in God and living not by lies. You see, totalitarianism in all its forms is built on a foundational lie that the state is the sole source of truth. Even more, the most diabolical lie is that I have no choice but to conform. That, in fact, is the lie that gives Caesar all his power. And why do people believe such lies? Because they want to. Because they want their world to make sense and will desperately hold on to a lie if it helps them make their life comfortable. Additionally, if they hear that lie consistently, that is what convinces and persuades, not the content nor the veracity of what is being said. People, of course, are eager to gobble up the lies of men because their minds are not saturated with divine truth. This teaches us that the most accessible key to individual liberation is personal non-involvement in lies. Yes, the powers that be may have power, but said power must not receive any help from you, the person who lives not by lies. 
Yes, let them be in control, but without your assistance. For when a person refuses to live a lie, that lie's days are numbered, as are the days of the power built upon a lie. The worst things that tend to happen in reality is not due to barefaced evil and brutality. It is when those who know what righteousness is act like weaklings. It is therefore unbecoming for the world to be filled with bold sinners, and their only competition is fearful saints. Moreover, it is not enough to simply be contra Caesar or against everything bad. The way a person remains whole is to be for something virtuous. Accordingly, our upcoming roles as Christians cannot be to merely draw the shutters and hide. We must prepare to be of active service to the church and to the world at large. We must recognize that in a world that is upside down, the value of truth claims do not depend on truth. It depends on who is making them. Christians therefore respond by not falling prey to the delusion that the entire problem is somewhere out there and not the person in the mirror who uncritically accepts falsehoods. Hence, the first step in living not by lies means making sure that your spiritual life is in order, for without this, you will be miserably unable to resist. You will be unable to resist because without a mind that is renewed and transformed by divine truth, there is no reliable resistance against the lies of earth. Second, living not by lies means knowing what is really true and then living that divine truth. It means standing firm in what will stand forever, cognizant that right now many will reject transcendent objective truth for comfortable lies and convenient deceptions. After all, look at what the majority did to Jesus, the truth incarnate. They crucified him. Standing for divine truth has always been the minority position, and courage is the prerequisite for all virtuous behavior. The Christian can therefore have bold confidence in the fact that God's truth is settled in heaven forever, and it will endure when soft totalitarian regimes are long gone. This provides a resilience immunity to convenient deceptions such as the greatest threat to life right now is a novel virus or if you just go with the flow, everything will be okay or no matter what you do, you can't do anything about it. People often lie to themselves first in private before they can fake it in public. This simply means knowing what is true and then living it does not first compel us to point a finger at someone else. It means pointing our own finger at the person in the mirror. It is not they who should be blamed, but ourselves. Third, living not by lies means speaking the truth everywhere, always, all the time, all for the glory of God. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks is to do so as the one who is speaking the actual words of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The reality of life is that few people will express truth and then allow it to be memorialized on paper. Even fewer will speak up in public and say what they think with people watching. That is okay, because living not by lies does not mean that everyone will be a revolutionary or a public agitator. 
Neither is being a public agitator necessary for all individuals. But living not by lies does mean refusing to say what you do not think everywhere, always, all the time. This may practically mean refusing to listen to news that propagates lies or refusing to read a writer that disseminates non-truths. This may also mean refusing to use language that has been deemed socially acceptable. Truly, in following this course of action, some will have their lives disrupted. But, as Alexander Shosenitsyn once famously wrote, quote, There are no loopholes for anyone who wants to be honest, either truth or falsehood, toward spiritual independence or toward spiritual servitude. End quote. Therefore, choose ye this day whom ye will serve. If God is God, then follow him. If Caesar is God, then follow him. Whatever you choose to do, you have chosen to do. Hence, if you are fearful to act, then don't grumble that you are oppressed. If you are frightened, don't point to anything outside yourself as an excuse. Fourth, living not by lies means that indeed the Christian may potentially lose everything here on earth for the sake of the truth. However, whatever we lose right now, God will restore in eternity. Revelation 21.4 tells us that it is God himself who will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. In his presence, there will be no death, no suffering, no crying, and no pain. The point is that the Christian's ultimate hope is never right now, it is in the Lord and the reward he prepares for those who remain faithful to him. Still, for right now, we are empowered to endure by God's presence and his promise never to forsake his own. Fifth, looking forward, living not by lies recognizes that extreme evil is coming and that evil will attempt to fashion a reality based on lies. We therefore must decide now to stand in the truth and not lie to ourselves by practicing cowardice in the face of evil. The Bible is crystal clear that nothing divides like the truth, and living by the truth is inherently risky. Yes, the stakes are higher for refusing to compromise on that which is true, but accepting convenient lies guarantees bondage that is well merited. Sixth, living not by lies means no pretending. It means saying what you mean and meaning what you say. It means not performing in public or figuratively speaking, not wearing a mask. Truly, it is impossible for me or you to change anyone else's mind. This fact must be accepted in a world built on lies for the truth is a minority view. Words create worlds, and the second you begin to speak as the world, that means you have tacitly accepted their definition of reality. This acceptance can neither be public nor private. Truly, while you are unable to change others, you still have a tremendous ability to control what you think and to take responsibility for yourself. The fact is, you have little power to change the world, so if you try, you will find yourself quickly burnt out. You will be the most efficacious and persuasive with family, friends, and close associates. Eventually, what will be sufficient are the members of a local remnant that associate with you and that are disciples of truth. 
This leads to the final way you can live not by lies. Seventh, living not by lies means sticking to your individual calling. A fact of life is that a person is prone to desire another's work more than their own. We covet that which we see because that which we see is the most accessible to us. Individually, this means what you are called to do is often distinct from what your neighbor is called to do. Communally, this means that which is Caesar's business is not the church's. And that which is the church's business is not Caesar's. In fact, the service that the church does out of its calling is not acceptable to God. Thus, do not expect God to bless or thank us for that which he never called us to do. The danger of ignoring this warning is that once we step out of our calling, we also step out of God's protection. Living not by lies, therefore, means you understand that total societal transformation is not your calling, but you are thus liberated to do what you have been called to do without distractions, focusing on leading and being a model for those God has placed immediately around you. As the saying goes, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. In conclusion, I will draw a rough map of where we go from here. Biblically speaking, trials have a sanctifying purpose, and the kind of Christian we are in times of testing is who we really are, including if we are Christian or not. If you have a reason for why you are doing something, you can endure almost anything this life throws at you. And why would any Christian endure suffering? Why would any Christian allow comforts and conveniences to be taken away? And the answer is, for the sake of the truth, all for the glory of God. Because Christ suffered for the truth, and he endured unjust suffering for the sake of those whom he sought to save. Because Christians value the eternal and heavenly over the temporal and earthly. Why Christians suffer is because when the state acts contra Christ, we stand firm in God's truth, knowing that He will strengthen us, help us, and cause us to stand, because we are upheld by His righteous, omnipotent hand. Beloved, a time of painful testing, even persecution is coming. Lukewarm Christians will not come through with their faith intact. Christians must therefore now sink their roots deeply into the Word of God, engage in daily fervent prayer, and submit to the Sovereign King, Jesus Christ. He is not only sufficient, but also supreme. Beloved, Christ never sought out mere admirers. He sought out disciples. Admirers keep their distance and observe from afar. Disciples aspire with all their strength to be like the one they closely follow. What history teaches us is that one of the tests of genuine biblical faith is that if that faith costs you something, thus if you seek cheap grace or Christianity without tears, it's time to pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Indeed, if your faith in Christ is not solid, the world will relentlessly try to break that faith into pieces. Consequently, as Rod Dreher writes in his book, Live Not By Lies, quote, If latter-day believers are not able and willing to be faithful in the relatively small trials that we face now, there is no reason to think we will have what it takes to endure serious persecution in the future. 
end quote. It must be said that resisting an immoral state and living not by lies does not mean responding sinfully. That is, if led to hate, rebel, or seek vengeance, then we have become like the state we are resisting, and hate rejects the impetus to love. In the end, a Christian who lives not by lies is totally free in a biblical sense. True biblical freedom is not license. It emphasizes the responsibility to live divine truth. The purpose is not to win, but to defend and do what is right. Subsequently, the church needs to stand only in the way God has directed us to walk. The truth has the power to end every tyranny, and we already know that the stone which the builders rejected is also the stone that will topple all forms of secular power. There is an old Russian proverb that was a favorite of the late Mr. Sholzhenitsyn. That proverb was, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. The truth is that Christ was sent to set the captives free. Thus, every act inspired by the fire of freedom counts, even the simple, ordinary, and unnoticed acts of everyday life. Satan knows that nothing can prevail against those who trust in Christ. Therefore, he studies how to direct our attention to earthly realities. How then shall we persevere? By faith. Faith looks over and above anything of this world and sees the greatest good in Christ himself. We persevere by holding out a firm resolution to trust in God no matter what. This trust animates a firm resolution to hold on to Christ, to know God's truth, to get the love of God in our hearts, and the will to obey God's commandments. The time is now to grow in humility, which counts a man's sin as his greatest evil and the grace of God as his chief good. A man who holds fast to these principles will persevere in times of trial. Since Christ left heaven to suffer for us, shall we not be willing to suffer some trials for him? In Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 to 22, Christ gives his final message to the seven churches. He says, Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. An eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.